God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from City Light Church in Omaha. Here's Pastor Chris Haruska. As we open up our Bibles and get into our text today, what we see today is Jesus. Jesus is at the table. He's sharing a meal with his disciples. And and here, as we come to this text, we see that Jesus is really in the final week of his earthly ministry. And he's going to use this meal, uh, the Passover meal, um, to really point to the disciples and say, this Passover meal, it's not just this old tradition that Moses set up that we do. This Passover meal is all about me. This Passover meal with this sacrificial lamb, it was all foreshadowing what I have come to do to be your greater Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's taking something old and he's making something new in the way that he welcomes this new covenant in. Now, that's what's going to happen. Jesus is at the table. He's going to show us how this Passover meal was actually pointing to him and why it matters to us. He's going to explain all that. But here, here's what I want to let you guys know before we jump in. Why does this matter to me? Okay. Um, why should this matter to you, even on a personal level, not just theologically, but on a personal level? Why does this, where does this touch you? Where does this intersect with your life? Sometimes you look at your life and like, I do not, I do like Christian things. I don't do all the Christian things. Like sometimes Jesus would call me to do certain things and I don't do them. Or he called me to not do certain things and I do those things. It's called sin. Has anybody else ever been there where you're a Christian? You're like, I'm still doing things that are not aligned with God's words and ways. Maybe I'm the only one. But all that to say is like, Everybody in this room, you're going to find yourself in a situation where you're a Christian and you realize there's stuff in your heart that's not okay. That's not like Christ. And you're going to have to make a decision. What do I do? There's a couple different options. You can blame shift. Well, they shouldn't have brought the conversation up. It wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right tone. You can blame shift. You can minimize. Have you heard this one? Oh, it's not that bad. I know a lot of other husbands that do way worse stuff, right? So we can blame shift. We can minimize. We can play religious games where we think, oh, okay, that was a bad moment. I had a bad moment. You know what I need to do? I'll, I'll have a good week. I'm going to try every day to get better. I'm going to be a better husband. And maybe God's going to look down on me and like, he's going to you know, grade me on a curve. And so honestly, if I, as long as I do more good in my marriage than I do bad, I'll be okay. That's called religious game playing where you're trying to earn God's love and acceptance. Okay. Or you can come to the table of grace and we can look to Jesus Christ. Because the question of what do I do when I realize that I've sinned is really the question of like the gospel. Do we believe that, that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that took our past, present, and future sins? That his work is sufficient for you and I, not just once to get us into the family of God, but, but it's enough to continue to come back to this table and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. So the hope for me is a broken, sinful man who's limping through this side of eternity and on my way to glory is not that I'm getting better and I'm trying harder. My hope is this sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, that his blood is sufficient, Amen. So maybe that's not the question you're asking. Like, what do I do with my sin? Maybe that's not the question you're asking. Maybe you're here today and you're asking the question, like, how how am I transformed? I want to be more like Jesus. I think the Bible would say, keep coming to this table. This table has the power to change your heart. This table is the one place on this side of eternity where you can come and you get more than you deserve. It's called grace. It's your soul would build built up. As you know that you're fully known, you're fully broken, and yet you're fully loved by an amazing God who's paid a great price to give you a seat at the table. Maybe you're asking the question like, on this side of eternity, who are my people? Have you ever hit that moment? Maybe you're part of communities and, 
in every single community, there's this unspoken rule that like, you've got to have your act together. You've got to smile at the right time. You've got to tell the right jokes. You've got to have something to offer. You better not let people into your mess and your brokenness and your hurt and your addiction and your fears and your insecurities, because you've got to be performing if you're going to have a place at this table. Well, this is not that kind of a church because the table tells you there's one perfect savior and a whole community of messy, broken people. That's called the church. That's us. That's you and I. That's how we get a seat at this table. It's not based on our strength and our resume and what we bring to it. It's what we require in a posture of dependence. That's what was happening in this scene. You got one Jesus, 12 messy disciples. That's a picture of this church. One savior, one perfect lamb, a whole bunch of people that are dependent on him, amen? Maybe you're asking the question of like, where are we headed? You ever wonder where you're going? The table answers this question. Because the table is not just a place where we look back at what Christ has done. It's actually a picture of what we look forward to. So as we get older, this, this week I took a little hike with my wife. And it's amazing. I didn't even know I had what we call quads in your body. But if you've ever tried to walk downhill for a long time, you realize you use your quads, which are muscles on the front side. And I'll just tell you right now, I cannot like literally put on these jeans this morning without about cramping up because I'm getting old, okay? I'm getting old. I'm getting what we call leaky and creaky, okay? And so um, let me just tell you, the Bible tells you that you get a new body, okay? You get a new resurrected body in glory. And that has never meant more to me than it does today, okay? Can I just tell you that? I'm getting my hair back and my quads are gonna work. Praise God, all right? But all that to say is like this, this text, and Jesus is gonna get there, but like this is actually pointing us forward. Like I just want you to know, church, where are you headed? There's actually a table. It's called the marriage supper of the lamb. And so these tables are not just in the Old Testament or we're here with Jesus. Like where we're going in glory is a place where you, the people of God, will sit around a table and we will sing worthy is the lamb and we'll eat a meal together. How awesome is that? Tables. If you like meals, you're going to like heaven. If you don't like meat, you're not going to like heaven. Okay. So all that to say is that that's why this is so significant for us today. So um, we've got a lot to cover. I want to cover two scenes. The first part is Jesus setting up the table. The next set of verses have to do with Jesus teaching at the table, okay? So let's just jump in. Verse 1, it says this. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, the Passover. So uh, here we get the setting, and we understand why it's significant. So Passover, if kind of you're new to your Bible, was one of the major religious celebrations for God's people. So uh, hundreds of thousands of people would be traveling into Jerusalem to worship and to sing and eat a Passover meal with their families. And this was a, a, a meal. Uh, this meal was a way for God's people to look back at how God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And so in the Old Testament, you might remember the story. God chose a people, right? The people go to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. They end up getting enslaved by Pharaoh. Not a good situation. Decades, decades, and decades. Generations grow up in slavery. Finally, God sends a deliverer, Moses, to help God's people be set free or exodus from Egypt into his promised land. So Moses goes into Egypt uh, to, to work up as a deliverer of God's people. And what happens is there's these 10 plagues, right? The final plague is the plague of the death on the firstborn. There's going to be judgment that lands on Egypt. And there's only two options. There's instructions given to God's people. If you want to be spared from the angel of death, okay, in this plague, there's only one option. You've got to take the blood of an innocent lamb, and you've got to slaughter that lamb, and you've got to go with the blood over the doorpost. Your family has to hide underneath the blood of the lamb. And so that night, the angel of death comes, and there's either death of the firstborn in your family or death of an innocent lamb. That's your options. Obviously, 
uh, Pharaoh relents after the judgment of God falls on Egypt and God's people are set free. They leave, okay? So then as they exited out in Exodus chapter 12, Moses commemorates God's people. It says he calls them and commands them to celebrate uh, the death, uh, death passing over them through this Passover meal. And so he sets up this meal. He says, every year, as God's people, we need to remember the grace of God. We need to remember that death literally passed over us and that we were set free from slavery. We need to remember that we were spared. We need to remember how faithful and good God has been. And to remember that, what we're going to do is we're going to take a Passover meal. And he starts to explain how we can take over this pass, take this Passover meal in Exodus chapter 12. So if you were sitting in a Jewish Passover meal, okay, here, here's what the meal would look like. You would have, you would sit around a table. You'd probably be on the floor. You would have your father as the host and the teacher, and he would help facilitate it. Your family would recline. And then you would have this unleavened bread. And that unleavened bread would be present at this Passover meal to represent the urgency and the hastiness in which the people of God left Egypt. They didn't have time for like the dough to rise. So they were gone. They left immediately. Then you would have the bitter herbs to remind you of the bitter years of slavery uh, that God's people had been delivered from. And then throughout the night, you'd have four different cups of wine. Between each cup, part of the Exodus story was retold. Scripture and Psalms were read. And then you would have the lamb, this roasted lamb on the table as the meal. And Jesus picks this moment when all the families in the city are looking back at this Passover meal, this Passover lamb, to describe how all of it foreshadows him. He is that greater lamb, the one whose blood is going to be poured out as a once and for all sacrifice for our sins. But not everyone in the city of Jerusalem is excited about what's happening with this Passover meal. All right, there's growing momentum in a growing group that's trying to get Jesus killed. Let me show you this in verse two. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people. So Jesus has been preaching and teaching in a lot of small regions uh, across the area and he's very popular. So now all of these people that have seen Jesus perform miracles and they've heard Jesus preach with authority. Now they're coming in Jerusalem. They've already worshiped him and celebrated him as he entered into the city. And so the religious leaders see this and they know a couple things. This crowd of people that has filled Jerusalem love Jesus. They wanna see Jesus. They wanna be around Jesus, okay? And they know Jesus has already predicted and told the whole crowd, these religious leaders are going to try to kill me, all right? Uh, they want to capture me and kill me and silence me. And so Jesus has called them out. They don't like that. And so what's happening is the religious leaders are trying to organize and figure out a way, how do we capture and kill Jesus? But they can't do it in front of people. And the city's crowded. And so they needed the help of an insider to figure out how can we get Jesus isolated? How can we find him when no one else sees him? When there's darkness at night, how do we capture and kill Jesus? Well, they're going to find an insider very soon. Look at verse three. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was uh, the number of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So they consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Guys, this is a really ugly scene. Like Jesus is, Judas is selling Jesus to the very men who want to kill him. The religious leaders are happy because they think they're finally going to silence Jesus. And we learn that Satan is active here. There's a spiritual war going on. Satan entered Judas and he agrees to act as an informant to help the religious leaders know how and where they can find Jesus. And this should serve as a warning to us right? Judas had sat with Jesus. He had eaten meals with Jesus. He had seen the miracles of Jesus. He had heard the preaching 
of Jesus, right? He saw all of that. And yet when Satan came at him, Judas didn't fight the devil, flee the devil, um, resist the devil. He just opened up his life and door to Satan. Now, Christians, can Satan possess you? That's one of the questions I would ask if I was reading this just in my daily devotional life. Can, can Satan possess you? No, the spirit of God is in you. Ephesians chapter one, the Holy Spirit is the seal on you, okay? You are already possessed. Jesus has already come all the way in your heart. Once you accepted him, he's in you. So you cannot be possessed by Satan. But I want you to know that Satan is real and he does want to still kill and destroy. He hates you. He has a plan for your life. First Peter says that Satan is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So maybe one of the warnings for us as a church needs to understand, like sometimes I think we as Christians believe we're kind of on this spiritual cruise. Like we're with all of our friends that listen to K-Love and we're in a cruise and we're on our way to glory, but that's not actually the picture the Bible tells us. The picture the Bible tells us is that you're in a spiritual war. You have a real enemy and he's firing real shots and he would really like to lie to you and he would really try to get you addicted to something. He'd really try to drag you away from Jesus. Like you're in a war. And so we as a church need to, in some ways, stay ready for wartime mentality, right? There's an actual battling going on. So Judas leaves to sell out Jesus, but other disciples are going to help set up the meal. Look at verse seven. They came to the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So Jesus gives instructions to Peter and John, specific instructions on where to go into the city to set up this Passover meal. And he tells them what to look for. He says, hey guys, go into the city and find a guy carrying a jug of water. And the key verse in this whole section is this, verse 13. And they found it just as he had told them. Now, why is this in here? Okay, this is a lot of verses in this section of scripture, in this chapter, that just describe the setting and the setting up of the table. So you gotta ask yourself if you're a Bible person, like why would this detail be included in here? Why would this, why would this just not be assumed that somehow we got to the table? And I think it has to do with a couple of things. There's one way to read your Bible when you read it and you could, you could look at all the miracles and the teachings and you could get to the very end. And very soon Jesus is gonna be arrested. He's gonna put on trial. He's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be executed. And you could read that and think, man, this just got out of hand. He went into Jerusalem and the Roman leaders flexed on him and the religious leaders outwitted him and the disciples betrayed him and Satan seemed to win the battle. Okay. But that's not at all what's happened. I think the Bible has included little details like this. Do you guys remember a couple chapters ago where, where basically Jesus tells the disciples how they can find a donkey for him to ride into town? He says, go into town, tell this guy like who's got a donkey. It's gotta be an unridden donkey, never been ridden before. The Lord has need of the donkey. Can you imagine me going up and being like, hey, the Lord has need of your Kia. What you gonna do? There's no way you're gonna like, not today. No, I have not heard that from the Lord, right? Like that, that doesn't work. Now imagine you're one of the disciples. Jesus is like, hey, the whole city is crowded. Hundreds of thousands of people have come. Every room is booked. Everybody's got a friend staying with them, okay? Go into the town, find a guy carrying a jug of water. Are you guys kidding me? 
Like somebody's got an analogy in water bottle. That's the guy. Tell him he's going to have you over for dinner tonight. Really? Like this is an amazing moment. Now what's at stake? What I think God is trying to hint is that Jesus is not somebody who got flexed on in the last hour. He's still sovereign. He has foreknowledge. Even his death and resurrection are under his own control. Jesus never got outwitted. Jesus never got defeated. Jesus even said that this was going to happen. John chapter 10, verse 18, he says, no one takes my life. I lay it down on my own accord. This is our God. Amen. So let me tell you how I've seen this play out in a very small way. This week I was on my deck with my son. So uh, we have a little deck in our backyard and uh, our backyard at at the very end of it is like a little play area because we're like, kids go play down there. So mom and dad can talk up here. Okay. Nobody else has done that. It's a really smart design. Okay. So we did that, but here's one of my favorite things my kids love to do all summer. They like to take like toys that are in our house and leave them in the lawn. Has anybody else's children do this? They have a whole chest of toys that belong in the chest, in the basement. But when their friends come over, they think, how can we take as many plastic toys as possible and scatter them all over the yard so that dad can accidentally mow over them? So all that to say is it takes me like, literally it feels like two hours to go through the yard, pick up all the toys so I can mow my lawn. So this year, this this week I was sitting on my deck, my kids were outside and my son starts running up towards the deck. I said, no, 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 Jude, Jude, no, 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 no. You, anybody else's kids like blind to the shoes that they leave in the middle of everything? They, they, buddy, the toy is right there. Pick the toy up. So I said, buddy, there's a toy right over there by the tree. <clears throat> Can you pause, pick up the toy <clears throat> and bring it in the house? He says, dad, I can't see the toy. I'm like, Lord, help me today. Lord, help me. Okay. So I said, no. Okay. If you can't see it, I promise it. It's right over by the tree. You just need to literally start head. Dad, I'm looking at the tree. I don't see the toy. I said, son, son, if you love me, start walking towards the tree. You're going to see the toy by the tree. So I can see it. He can't see the toy. For some reason, he can't see the toy, but he starts to pivot and he walks towards the tree and he goes, oh, I see the toy, dad. And he runs in. I'm like, glory to God. The Lord has spared a child's life today in this backyard. Okay. So, so he brings it in. Now, I say all of that because he couldn't see it. He could not see it, all right? And and here's the, here's, I feel like this is a small little picture of what's happening. The reason the disciples went is they couldn't see it. They could not see how this was going to happen. But just like my son, that my son trusted as he started heading towards that tree, he trusted that the father could see where it was at. He trusted I had a vision for it. He, I was, I had a, I could see this toy in this grass. And in the same way, I think this is our picture of our lives. Like, how do you do Christianity on this side of eternity when you don't always see how everything in your life is going to work for his glory and your joy? That doesn't mean you give up in the middle of the story. You means that I trust in the sovereign God who has foreknowledge. And the scripture says that he is working all to get things together for the good of those who love him. I trust that. And I think that at the end, Christians, this truth will be true of us. That in the very end, we will find it just as he said it would be. I think that's the picture of Christianity. We live by faith in the promises of God. We know that Jesus is sovereign. We know that he's able. We know that he's personal. We know that he's powerful. We know that he has foreknowledge. We know that he's in control of all things. So we trust him. So Jesus is setting the table. The second thing that Jesus is doing is he's teaching at the table. That's the second thing I want to show you guys. Look at verse verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So I think everyone in this room, you have something you look forward to. Jesus had eagerly looked forward to eating this meal with the disciples. Now, why was he eating? Why was he so excited to get around this table, right? He knows his sufferings right before him. I think there was an anticipation and an, an announcement to say, I am the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And he knows that for these disciples, this will be the final Passover supper in which they eat it and think about the great delivery of Moses and what happened in that Exodus story. From now on, they're going to celebrate this Passover meal and they're going to look back at what Christ has done and remember him. And he says, although I'm looking forward and I've been eager to eat this meal, he says, I'm not eating it. And I'm not going to eat this meal with you until the kingdom is finally ushered in. And so what Jesus is doing is like, when you kind of zoom out on your Bible, there's three tables that are so significant. I've been trying to like hint at them, but just, so, just to give you the big picture before we zoom back in here, it's like you've got the Old Testament story in Exodus chapter 12, okay? That's the Passover instruction that Moses gives God's people, okay? That's the meal that the Jewish people would eat, the Passover meal. Then you have Jesus here in Luke chapter 22, and he's going to usher in a new covenant around this table. And then there's another table that's mentioned at the very end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 19. And Jesus says that that table is coming. And it's going to be full of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus and us, his church and people, will be together at the table with joy and singing. And it will be the best meal with the best people and our generous Savior. This is what it says about this meal. If you've ever asked the question, am I blessed? Revelation chapter 19 says it very clearly. He says, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christian, you need to know. Many of us in this room, you're suffering. And you're going to ask this question. Does it ever get better in my story? And we're not guaranteed that on this side of a glory. But what I love about the marriage supper of the Lamb, it says that his grace wins on our lives. Cancer and depression and Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's, like it doesn't win. For those of us who know and love Jesus, he's got a table for us in glory. And Jesus is saying, I'm not eating this meal because there's another meal and a fuller meal and a more satisfying meal. And when I usher in my kingdom once and for all and I tie up Satan and throw him into a pit and I usher in the new heavens and earth, I'm gonna set the table for God's people and then I will enjoy the meal with all of us. And so even when we take communion together as a church, like there's part of us that is looking back We're looking back at what Christ has done. There's part of us that's looking around this room saying, look at this communal meal. This is not just for you. This is for us as the family of God to come and receive the grace. Like you're not alone on this side of eternity. That's what this communal meal is about. But there's also this anticipation of a greater meal, a greater day. Guys, this is just the foretaste of the greater grace that is going to be for us when we're in eternity. So he's pointing us forward to this greater grace, this greater table. And then verse 17, look at, he says, actually, but this present meal is about me. And he took the cup and we had given thanks. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he's again, pointing us forward. And he took the bread and we had given thanks. He broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant, new covenant. That's a big word, new covenant and my blood. So Jesus looks at this table. He's looking at his disciples and he starts by identifying the elements. He says, this bread doesn't just represent the suffering of God's people 
to endure slavery. It represents my suffering. I will be broken and torn for you. I will be beaten. I will be stretched out on that cross as a sacrifice for you. And in the Exodus story, there's this, I'm moving God's people through a deliverer from slavery to freedom. Jesus is that greater Moses who's come to give us a greater freedom from Satan, sin, and death so we can have freedom in Christ. That's what he's coming to do. He says, look at this bread. It's gonna be broken. That's what I'm trying to do. And then he looks at the cup and he says, this represents my blood that's gonna be poured out for you. I will die so that you can eternally live right with God. So what's missing at this meal? You've got the leavened bread. You've got the, uh, the, the cups at the table. But what's missing is the lamb. That would be very unusual. You've got, no, you've got no lamb on the table. And the lamb is not on the table because the lamb is at the table. And what Jesus is saying is, I will be the lamb. If you want to escape the wrath of God and the judgment of God, rule-keeping, morality, and sobriety, and sexual purity, and you being better and trying harder, none of that will save you. Only hiding underneath the blood of the lamb can do that. You're only saved by faith in this provision and substitute. So I just want to ask you to pause. Move from this table, okay, that Jesus is at in Luke chapter 22. And I want you to place yourself in that original Passover meal in Exodus, okay, and in Genesis, where God instructs his people to hide underneath the blood of his lamb. So imagine you're there, okay, and you're hanging out with your Jewish family and your friends, and you're, you're eating this meal, and you've been instructed through Moses that you've got to get together, and you've got to sacrifice this lamb, and you've got to put the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death passes over your family. Now, the Bible is very graphic about that night, in that there were screeches as people discovered the firstborn in their family had died. And there's terror in the streets, wondering if the angel of death and the judgment of God is going to land on them. And I think there's a couple different ways that you could eat your first Passover meal. The first one is with total insecurity, wondering, wondering, did I do it right? Wondering if God is going to punish me for my sins, wondering if, if there's something I haven't confessed that I should have, wondering if my prayer life is sufficient, wondering if death is going to land on me. There's also, there's some of us that probably would have been at that first Passover, like just pass me a little extra helping. Totally at ease. We did the thing that God called us to do. And so I've got joy and freedom. Death is not going to land on us. Let me just ask you, which one of those two people is saved? Let me just tell you the answer, both. Because it's not about how strong your faith is. It's about how sufficient the blood of the lamb is. That's Christianity. There's some of you guys who are insecure and you're fearful and you're wondering, have I done enough? It's not about you. It's the blood blood of the lamb and it's sufficient. And church, I wanna let you know, I've told it to you before, it's my only hope as your pastor. My only hope is the blood of lamb. My hope is not that I'm a better dad than my dad was. That was a pretty low bar. My hope is not that I've had some years of freedom from sexual sin. That's not my hope. My hope is not that I'll get to be a better husband than I am this week. That's not my hope. My only hope for a reconciled relationship with God and eternal life and sitting at the table of the marriage supper of the lamb is that the blood of the lamb is sufficient for me. And church, I wanna let you know the blood of the lamb is sufficient for you. That's the invitation to Christianity. Amen. He says this at the very end. He says the new covenant is here, right? He's saying that there's a new covenant being ushered in in verse 20. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, what is that hinting back at? Again, this is all tying back to the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah, prophet of God, said there's a new covenant, okay? 
And it's not going to be many sacrifices. It's going to be a once and for all sacrifice that is ushered in. And this new covenant, God's laws are not going to be on tablets or documents. God's law, God's word, God's way, God's spirit. It's going to be on your heart. Not just that. There's not going to be um, sins that are remembered. Sins will be forgiven once and for all. Here's what he says. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Church, this is good news. The sins that you want to hold on to and remember, the Lord has made a way for them to be remembered no more. Guys, there's always something. I don't know if Satan has done this in your life, but Satan loves to accuse me of everything I've done. My worst moments. Chris, you remember when you did this and you clicked on that website and you did that thing and you said that with your words? Now you want to act like you're a Christian? Look what you've done. Look at the people of your hurt. Have you ever heard the accusation of Satan? I have. And the Bible would say he's the accuser of the brethren. And you know what I do? I remind myself of this first. The Lord will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sins no more. That's really good news for you and I. And I just want to call it out. The divorce, it's forgiven. The abuse of words you spoke, it's forgiven. The grace of Jesus Christ is so scandalous, you can hide under the blood of the lamb. That's the great news of Christianity. Not that it's dismissed. I want you guys to know that God takes sins very seriously. He's about his holiness. There is justice in Christianity. This is not a get out of jail for free. The son of God had to go and pay the, step into the wrath of God so that you and I would be spared from it. Somebody had to die. The great news of Christianity is it doesn't have to be you because the blood of land has given his life. What great news. Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Chris Haruska of City Light Omaha. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.